Welcome to New Spring Church. We pray this message has inspired you to live a great life. For more information about our story, go to newspring.org.au. One um, verse of scripture that I've heard over and over again, and um, I tend to go back to a lot in my own life, is Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, which says, Where there is no vision, people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps um, the law. Has anyone heard that proverb before? Where there's no vision, people cast off restraints. Where there's no vision, people uh, cast off things. And um, a lot of times I've heard that particular um, verse um, spoken as a safeguard in observation of a culture. And, and a lot of times it's spoken in observation of a culture that seems to be unrestrained or a, a culture that seems to be rudderless or, or, or something about life that seems to be a little bit destructive. Because I think we understand that people do perish because of a lack of Vision, there is something about the way we see that actually frames the way we live, isn't it? There's something about how I can see life and how I can see myself in the world that will actually determine the behaviors or the things that I will actually put on myself. You know, in this world, we see that men perish because they do dumb stuff. Absolutely. But fundamentally, men perish because of a lack of vision. Marriages perish because of a lack of vision. Businesses perish because of a lack of vision. Churches, many, many churches perish because of a lack of vision. And it seems to me that the difference between uh, success or the difference between continuity or longevity comes down to how someone or a group of people can actually see life. And uh, I think that's really important that we are continually stretching the way we see. Think about the music industry, for instance. I remember when I was young, and um, if there was a particular song which I really liked, and um, I grew up with the influences of my cousins. And um, because I grew up with the influences of my cousins, I grew up in Armandale, but really loved R&B. Anyone love R&B? <laughs> Who said no? Yeah, you like country music or something like that, don't you? Yeah, hillbilly. No. <laughs> One of my elders does not like R&B. Learn something new every day. There you go. But I remember when I was younger, and this was in the 90s, that if, if, I wanted, if I liked a song and if I wanted to like, get a recording of that song, this is what I had to do. I needed to get a cassette tape. Do you remember those? Get a cassette tape. Right, you've still got a cassette tape, man. You need to move into like the year 2000, Sam, <laughs> let alone 2018. So I used to get a cassette tape, and I used to put it into like a cassette, re- like, like, what are they called? The player, a cassette, a tape recorder. We don't even have those things anymore. And I, I would sit and listen to the radio, and as soon as it came on, you never know when it's going to happen, you hit record, right? You hear, and you hope, I was hoping that my clumsy, fat, little, chubby fingers wouldn't slip. And usually, like, you record it, and, like, you always miss the first bit. So, but, but the other option I had is if I wanted to really um, get that song, I had to buy the entire album, right? So you have to buy, like, an album of 12 to 15 songs if you just like one song. And it was just an absolute nightmare. So I remember doing that. Enter Apple and enter iTunes. Game changer, Right? You know, they've been accused of changing the music industry and doing all this stuff. And, but what they did, they were able to see beyond those two options. And what they provided the world is that you can actually buy one single at a touch of a button. And therefore, the whole idea of CDs and albums, all that's almost obsolete. And in case you didn't know that, you can actually, instead of buying the whole album, you can go and buy one single. But it was a game changer. They actually saw the world differently, regardless of what people say. You know, businesses and innovation happens because people see things differently. Whether it be things like Apple or Netflix. Netflix has changed the game, hasn't it? When's the last time you walked into a video store? 
You know, chances are it was a while back because we have things like Netflix and Stan has kind of changed the game. Uber's coming to the scene and everyone's railing against Uber, but Uber's succeeding because they see the world differently and they do things differently. Things like Amazon, all these businesses, all these initiatives have come into the world and the reason why they have progressed and the reason why they are going forward um, to the detriment of some other um, entities is because they have the ability and they've had the capacity to see things different. They have a greater vision. They have a higher vision. They have a broader vision. And I would submit that if a lack of vision actually means that people take off restraints, if a lack of vision means that people take off discipline, if a lack of vision means that, that, that people kind of take a backward step instead of a forward step, I would submit to any single person, doesn't matter if you're a church person or not, that if you have a higher vision, if you have a greater vision, that would actually cause you to put on restraint. That will cause you to put on discipline. That will cause you to put on the things necessary in order to actually see that vision come to fruition, right? The last couple of days, they've been banging on about this guy who's in the Socceroos. And you know what? I was listening to the radio yesterday, and they were like kind of scoffingly saying, this guy comes from Kelmscott Senior High School, right? Kelmscott Senior High School. Who would have thought? They were on the radio. They were kind of mocking it. Unbelievable. First, they actually said, this kid comes from Arbordale. They said this on the radio. I couldn't believe it. What is the difference between a guy who's grow up in the same area, but now he's playing on the world stage, or is actually vision? Because when vision comes, you actually do the things necessary to ensure that you get to what you see. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times we may look into our world, your issue may not be your issue. Your issue is simply you haven't got a big enough vision in your life. Need some big visions. Anyone got some big vision here? I hope you have some big vision here. You hang out in this church and I'll be prodding and I'll be probing and I'll be poking and I'll be calling and I'll be pushing and I'll be, I'll be unrelentless in calling each and every one of us to have a greater, grander, godly vision. Not just for your life, not just for your family, but also for this church, for this nation, for this state. Higher love. I'm going to submit this to you. I'm going to sort of pick up where Chelsea left off yesterday. Talking about higher love. I'm going to say this, and I believe this with all my heart. That if we are to operate in a higher love, if we are to experience a higher love, if there's somehow that we could possibly touch and be transformed and actually see transformation happen through us because we are living in a greater reality or we are living in a greater expression of what we see in the scriptures. If we want to live in a higher love, it's going to take a higher vision than a lot of us have at the moment. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this idea of vision. And um, this, this series is about higher love, but it really is actually being able to see things differently. And I'm really believing that this series is, is going to help all of us individually. It's going to really impact our families, absolutely. But one of the biggest things which I'm really hoping and praying for this series is that it causes any single person who says, I'm a Jesus follower, to really grapple with and to really seriously consider what is the function and what is the role of the church in this world. Because of the church can demonstrate a higher love. If a church can have a higher vision, well, my goodness, I reckon we're going to get on the right path. What is the purpose and function of the church? In other words, what is church eyes? What are the kind of eyes we should have as a church? What are church eyes? 
the origin of the word church, ecclesia, the etymology of it, it comes from Greece. Did you know that? Our New Testament is predominantly like written in Greek. comes from Greece. Do you know originally that word church, it was actually adopted by Christ followers and it actually originally meant it referred to a congregation or an assembly of the called out ones and they were called out to discuss the situation of the polis or the situation of the city. That is the origins of that word church. If you're going to go back to what church means. That they were, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The church, by definition, is this gathering of people who are called out. We come together to worship and we come together to be equipped so we can impact the polis, the city. What is the role and function of a church? What are church eyes? Go back to the very beginning. It seems that the church gathered together to look out into the city, to consider the situation of the city, to grapple with the situation of the city, and to come up with like, ideas and come up with strategies about how we can impact and change the city. Could you imagine if every single church, let's just say the city, like Wanneroo, for instance, every single church gathered over there and they came together and they're sitting over there and they call, we know, we're the church, we're called out, we understand our role and function in this world right now and they're just looking at like Wanneroo. It's like, uh-huh. Yep, see that? Oh, did you see, did you see that? I mean, that just happened there. But they, instead of like gathering to look inside, they were gathering to look outside. And then they knew that our role and function is to impact what we see. Could you imagine if that happened in Perth? If all the churches got together, you know, and like got together and it's like, you know what? We, we, we kind of like let go of some of our Western thinking about what success and all that really looks like in the church and, and all that. And instead of coming together and saying, well, how many people you got in your congregation? Well, I got this many people, Mike. Can you imagine if we actually came together and we actually look, you know what? We don't even have to look far. We're actually being told what the situation is. We understand where, where, where the trouble spots are. Imagine if we actually put together all of our kingdom resource, no matter what name we came under, but understood we come under the name of Jesus, not under like a Baptist or a Church of Christ, or, or a, like not under that, and we actually looked at that. Could you imagine? In the city of Armadale, we are placed here. So the good news is we don't need to look at the city of Wanneroo, but we are called to look at the city where God plants us. The, 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 I was actually thinking about this because it dawned on me a couple of years ago when Donna did a survey when we had Cafe Leah going here. And um, we did this survey about where people come from. And what was really interesting is that most people didn't come from the city of Armadale, they came from the city of Gosnells. If you look at a map, God has positioned this church right on the border of Armadale and Gosnells. Okay? So for now, we're going to look at Armadale. But it just informs us that at some point, we're going to, have to start looking at Marnie. We're going to start looking at Gosnells. Let's let you know. But our job is to gather and to grapple with that. Doesn't that change things? That's what we, that, that just changes things, doesn't it? Think about Jesus' missional start. This is his missional start. We find it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes to his hometown 
goes in synagogue and does what he does everywhere. But in verse 18, this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that (coughs) captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down. All eyes in the synagogue were looking at him intently. Can you imagine that? He's like, he just dropped this truth bomb. Bang. He just sits down. Everyone's looking at him. Silence. And then he says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. That is Jesus' missional start. What was his missional start? To bring good news to the poor to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see. Later on, he sends out his disciples. And he says in John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, as the Father has sent me. Now, how exactly did the Father send him? To preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free. That's how the Father sent him. And Jesus says, this, if, you're, if you're a follower of me, I'm going to send you in the same way the Father sent me. He blows in the Holy Spirit and sends them off. Let's us know something about the function and the role of the church. It really lets us know about church eyes. How are we supposed to see as the church? The function and role of the church is not simply to be a worldly and successful institution with its own preoccupied with its own maintenance and survival. This is what the Church of Christ is supposed to be, right? The Church of Jesus Christ. It is supposed to be a true sign of the reign of God. It is supposed to be a place, a free space where the liberating grace of Jesus Christ is set out to free people to and for God and for each other and for this world. The church of Christ is supposed to be a sign to this world of the reign of God, of the reign of God. Jesus said, I've been sent to liberate. I've been sent to heal. I've been sent to do all this. This is what the church means. Does anyone agree with that today? Does that sound exciting to anyone today? That sounds exciting to me. So in order to live in a higher love, you need to have a greater vision. We need to have a greater vision. We need to have a higher vision of who we are as God's people and the role we are called to. We are not just called to this four acres of land on the corner of Centre and Lake Road in Camelo. We are called to an entire city where God has placed us. The kingdom of God. Have you noticed in the New Testament how... That word kingdom comes up so many times. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom. Always banging on about the kingdom. Rest of the New Testament, always talking about the kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Disciples come to to Jesus. Teach us how to pray, Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All about kingdom. Kingdom. It's very interesting in um, in the New Testament where we look at this word kingdom. There's this word that's predominantly used for the word kingdom in the New Testament. It's called basilia. Sometimes we think of kingdom as a place of reigning, don't we? You know, if you have a king, king's the king over this region, right? And we kind of think of it that way. And sometimes the world doesn't make sense to us because we think, well, if Jesus has won the victory, why is there so much injustice? Have you ever thought about that? If Jesus is king, well, why do we still see what happens in the world today? 
and that really um, jars us. And then we hear things like, you know what, the kingdom of God's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated, which means it's Jesus is king, but like he's going to be finally king of everything when he comes back. But it's still like, well, what does that, how, how, does, how does this kingdom message outwork? Well, in the New Testament, it's really interesting why I said this word, because there is a word that talks about the place of reigning, but the word that the New Testament uses when it talks about kingdom is the act of reigning as opposed to the place of reigning. Let me, let's think about it like this. Imagine you know a family and there was just some deplorable things that are happening, okay? Whether it be like they just can't feed themselves or there's abuse that's happening. Or, and, and you would look at that place, that family, and you would say, that is not a place where God is reigning, wouldn't you? Like if we're talking about kingdom, man, that is like, that is not a kingdom thing. However, what can happen and what should happen is that any man or any woman, any child of God can enter into that place where God is not reigning and actually bring about by the Holy Spirit the acts of God's reign. Do you get that? Because that is the game changer right there. Because we get so jarred when we look at places where it's so dark and so dangerous and we think there is no way God is like, we think, man, that place isn't blessed, that place is cursed. Yet, the gospel and the New Testament says that in this dispensation of time that we are right now, this is not about the, the, the place that that will happen. This is about God's church actually stepping into those places of darkness and doing the acts of the kingdom. And doing the acts of the kingdom will actually bring the reign of God, the liberating presence of God in that, in that place. Do you understand that? Does that? That changes everything. So, so that change, if our role and our function is to look at the situation of the city and to grapple with the situation of the city, and we look in the city and we say, man, there are some dark places. Take 12 buckets, 12 buckets in Grovelands. I've been to Grovelands. Grovelands is very different to the public school where my kids go to. Let me tell you, it is light in, like, in, in, our, in our particular instance. It is pretty dark over there. And I look at it and I'm saying, hmm, that's interesting. Look at that situation. Wow. I wonder what could possibly happen if we actually get in there where a place, a region where God's kingdom isn't established. But I wonder what would happen if a bunch of Christians went in there and cut loose for Jesus Christ and did the acts of the kingdom of God. I wonder what could possibly happen. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Think about some areas in your life. Think about like maybe a workplace where, you, where you're at and you're thinking, man, and you, you may be praying to God, say, God, get me out of this workplace. And God's saying, why, 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 do you want me to get, why do you want me to get out of this workplace? Because this place is mean. These people are nasty. And God may have just sent you into that workplace where he's obviously not reigning, but he sent you into that place to do some acts. That's the role and function of the church. That's the role and function of the church. Jesus said, as the Father sends me, I'm going to send you. As he sends me, I'm going to send you. In light of that, that was kind of a foundation thing. And don't worry, we will come back to that over and over again. I want to talk about a little beautiful little story that actually demonstrates Jesus acting out the kingdom. 
And it's absolutely gorgeous. It is a beautiful story. It's found in Luke 17. It's one of my favorite stories. About, um, about, it's absolutely beautiful. Found in Luke 17, verse 11. If you've been a Christian for a while, you would have heard it. I'll read from verse 11. I'm reading from the NLT. As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for all that he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. You know, most sermons I've heard about this story talks about gratitude. And it talks about like this one guy came, with are the other nine? But there's something about what Jesus does here that is so instructional for all of us. We find in verse 11, the first thing, Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem. He reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. You need to understand the position of this story is that Jesus has set his face. He is determined. He is moving towards Jerusalem. Okay? This story is happening when Jesus turns around. He looks to what is coming, which is the cross. And he says, I need to get to the cross. I need to offer myself as a sacrifice. And as he is on purpose heading towards Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified, this story happens along the way. Very interesting that on this journey towards Jerusalem, he comes on this border between Galilee and Samaria. You read through the stories of Jesus, he is always putting his foot in the wrong place. He is always in the wrong location. Always. Always in the wrong place. He's in the wrong location. As he's on the border, he's traveling, and um, there's hostilities that are happening, obviously, between Galilee and um, um, Samaria. These two regions do not like each other. You know, if you're a Jewish person, you're not supposed to even associate with a Samaritan. You know, there's prejudices, there's people, there's just issues, there's history. People just don't like each other. And on this journey towards Jerusalem, he's walking on the border. Ten lepers start yelling out to him. The story says that the one who got healed is a foreigner. Um, in fact, Jesus seems a little bit perplexed. The one who's come back to me, he's a foreigner, which implies that in this group of ten... There were Samaritans, there was foreigners, but there was also um, some Jewish people as well. And what happens back in those days is that if you had leprosy, you were removed from community. You didn't have a choice. You were removed. So not only is there all this prejudice on one side and this side, these lepers have been removed. Get over there. They're at a distance. They've been removed. They have this disease. They've been cut off. They're an outcast from society. Lepers would walk around like ghosts. They wouldn't have any hope. They couldn't come near community. Their best hope was that someone would show a bit of compassion and maybe throw them 
something to eat. But other than that, they defend for themselves. They were all sort of just cast away, cast aside. They're standing far off. The scripture doesn't actually tell us in great detail. This, our translations don't tell us in great detail that, but they were nowhere near where Jesus was. They weren't allowed to be. And my question is, I read this story in light of what the church is supposed to do, in light of what church eyes really are, is what is the acts of the kingdom? What is the act of the kingdom in the story that we're supposed to learn? <clears throat> well, Jesus heals the leprosy. That is definitely an act of the kingdom, hands down. But that's not the first act. No, no, no. That's not the first act. In fact, it seems that <clears throat> in order for that act of the kingdom to happen, an initial act had to happen. It seems to me that <clears throat> the healing could not have happened if something didn't happen before. These lepers, they're crying out, they're standing off afar. <clears throat> Look at verse 14. Luke 17, 14. He looked at them and said, Go show yourself to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. So we're given two verses here, okay? We're given verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says that the lepers are crying out or the lepers are shouting so they can get the attention of Jesus. Have mercy on us. They're shouting. The very next verse says that Jesus is, what does it say? He said to them. He's talking to them. Unfortunately, we don't get in Scripture what happens between verse 13 and verse 14, but the way that we read it, we just read it through. But how in the world does something happen when they have to shout to get Jesus' attention to the very, very next verse, Jesus is just talking to them. Well, I submit that the first act of the kingdom happened. Jesus walking on the border, always walking where he's not supposed to be walking. But you know what? He is God, so he can do whatever he wants. Jesus crosses there. He crosses the boundary. He crosses the border. Jesus rejects the boundaries imposed on these lepers. And he gets close enough to these lepers to speak to them. That's the first act of the kingdom. We could focus on the healing stuff, but how in the world is Jesus going to heal if he's not close enough to touch them? We can bang on about miracles and all that stuff as a church, as we obviously do. We're a charismatic church. We believe in a full dispensation of the gifts of the Spirit. All of them. All right? All of them. All right? So we can go on about that, 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 but unless we get close enough, we're not going to see anything. We're not going to see anything unless we get close enough. And Jesus has to get close enough, and then he has to touch. Some of the descriptions of lepers in those days, their flesh was literally falling off. The coloration of their face It'd been like, like, okay, so I've got a, a darker skin complexion. My skin complexion would be more similar to them than what a lot of um, people over here would be. 
But could you imagine, like, you look at my face and a, a large part of my face has turned green. Could you imagine looking at my face and my nose is missing? Yeah? Could you imagine that I had no hair? Well, obviously you can imagine that, but, but there are just wounds and there's... Like, this is not a pretty sight. Jesus gets close enough, but he doesn't get close enough and like sort of say, well, be here. No, he gets close enough to touch him. That's the first act of the kingdom. That's where the rubber hits the road when it comes to church eyes. That's the point. The role and function of the church. If Jesus said, I'm sending you in the same way that the Father sent me, and Jesus is walking, and get this, Jesus got something really important on his mind, okay? Something really important. He's thinking, all right, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. You know what? I'm the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. I'm going to go. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to take on the full wrath of God so that people don't necessarily have to. If they, if they want to take the wrath of God and live in eternity away from God, that's their decision, but they don't have to. The gospel is this. The wrath of God is either poured out on the cross or in hell. Take your pick. I'm taking the cross. You know what I'm saying? So he's got a lot on his mind, right? And as he's going with a lot on his mind, it's almost on purpose. It's almost on purpose. He's walking on the boundaries. He's like getting close enough to where he's not supposed to go. But he's close enough that some people who have been cast out, they start shouting to get his attention. And as they start shouting to get his attention, he doesn't think, man, I just, I was like, it's not like Jesus thinking, guys, I, I know you're in a bit of trouble right now, but I'm about to go and save the world. You know what I'm saying? I've got something bigger in mind. No, he actually stops, steps over the border, goes to them, starts talking to them, touches them, heals them. Crazy. And get this. This is what I find really, really frustrating. Okay? As, as, like as a as a kind of this Christian who needs more work of the Holy Spirit in my life. He heals 10, and he heals 10. And only one comes back. What would you think? If you were doing some of the acts of the kingdom, okay? Some of the acts of God. You know, Jesus walking, fully human, fully man, anointed by the Holy Spirit, actually says in one place, if I cast out a, a, a devil by the finger of God, imagine if we did things by the power of the Holy Spirit, the finger of God, and we do things for like 10 people, and one comes back, well, that's great. But then the other nine is like, isn't that crazy? Jesus, wouldn't you just do it for that one who was going to come back? But Jesus does it for the nine who he knew wasn't going to come back. Doesn't that mess with us? Is that crazy? If we are to do the acts of God, knowing that we are not in that time right now where the reign of God is happening in regions and in places, but we're supposed to step into the dark places so we can do the acts of God, the acts of the kingdom, knowing I'm going to do stuff for like 10 people and only one of you is actually going to worship God or thank God because of it and actually be okay with possibly the other nine still throwing dust in your face and walking off. Is that not challenging? And Jesus does this on his way to the cross. It's a setup. 
It's not just a quaint little story. It's an instructional story. It's an instru- I, I, I'm bewildered that it talks, and it says that Jesus was walking by the borders. It doesn't say that the disciples were with him. I'm wondering if they were. They had a big issue with this. Second service last week, we were talking about all the stuff that Jesus was doing in Israel. You know, he's healing, he's teaching and all that. He feeds 5,000. Like he, he, he just heard that John the Baptist has been beheaded. So, so he's kind of like wanting to get away. He can't get away. People keep following him. The only way he can get away is by going into this Gentile territory. He goes to Gentile territory. People start moving and, and like gathering and, and meeting him over there. What does he do? He has compassion on them. He teaches them. He feeds the 4,000. He does exactly the same thing in Israel as he does in Gentile territory. Exactly the same stuff. Matthew's outlined like that. I'm thinking, wow. Jesus' life is supposed to be instructional for us. We're followers of Jesus. But how confronting, how challenging. Doesn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It makes me think about, wow. Am I willing to follow Jesus in this way? Because that's challenging. Wow. I wonder what some of the borders or the boundaries, some of the no-go areas. So the reason why the lepers were overcast out there, that was a social construct. Okay? It was a social construct that was imposed for the health and safety of the majority. I wonder if there's any social constructs that we find ourselves kind of walking away from. I wonder if there's some borders that we kind of get a little bit close, but we haven't actually stepped over into. That's challenging. That's really challenging. And the, the, the danger of when we come and we gather together, see, I told you I need to hear this message too. The danger of when we come and we hear scripture like this is that now we've heard it. So now we know, right? So um, in some ways, it sucks to be you, but now you know. But now that we know, we're graced and we're empowered to do. Jesus said, in the same way the Father sends me, I'm sending you. Then he blows the Holy Spirit on them. So we don't do anything in and of ourselves, by ourselves. We do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. But there are areas, there are areas, there are areas that God's called us to. And when we see that there is this parity, where there is this gap, where we, where we look at this beautiful gospel and we look at the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, and, and, we, and we hear these wonderful things, death has been defeated, sin has been defeated, and then we look out into the world and say, but there's death and there's sin. But we can't allow that stuff to jar us and to trip us up. We need to understand that when the New Testament is talking about kingdom, that kingdom reign of regions and place that will happen because when Jesus comes back for the second time, every knee will bow. Every knee. Every knee. You know, it doesn't matter if you, but every knee. But while we are in this, this period of grace, okay, we are as the church to have church eyes where we look into these areas And instead of walking away, we need to follow the example of our beautiful Jesus who steps in to get close enough to talk and to touch. And as we talk and we touch, healing will happen. 
I am pretty convinced of this. I think that we're going to see an outpouring of some amazing supernatural things. But we need to get the horse before the cart. Do you remember Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine, okay? Water into wine. I'm um, running out of time. Ben, maybe you should come up here, otherwise I'll keep rabbiting on. Um, Water into wine. So Jesus and his disciples, they're invited to this wedding, right? Something happens, they run out of wine. I mean, like, seriously. I mean, does that seem like a huge problem? That's like an incidental problem, right? That's just bad planning. Mary comes up to Jesus, say, Jesus, we've run out of of, um, water. We've run out of wine. Jesus says, Mom, not now. What did he say? He said, my time has not yet come. What was he saying? You wanted me to put my hand to something that is immediate, but my whole life is about something that is ultimate. Yet, he takes care of the immediate, doesn't he? But before he takes care of the immediate, he articulates my life is about the ultimate. Sometimes we get preoccupied with the immediate And possibly, if our mind, if the way that we saw the world, if we saw that our job and our role is to do the acts of the kingdom, to have an ultimate mindset while addressing immediate concern, maybe we might see more healings, more miracles. When you pull the Gospels together, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, they talk about miracles. People were in wonder and all that. John is very different. He talks about the same works of God, but he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs. Everything that Jesus done was a sign pointing to the ultimate. Everything that we do as the church is supposed to be a sign. When we gather together, like, do you know why the Bible says don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together as some of the inhabitants do? You know what happens when we come together like this? And look around. We've got all different ages. We've got all different, like, um, skin colors and all different nationalities here. This is a prophetic picture of what will ultimately happen when every tribe and every tongue comes together and worships God for the rest of eternity. This is just supposed to be a little glimpse. But everything points to ultimate. Everything points to ultimate. You come from healing. I believe there'll be healing this morning. Because we've been proclaiming the word of God in light of the kingdom. You need some healing? Prayer team's going to be here. Just go to the word of God. But understand, it's a sign. It's a sign. You think you've got sickness in heaven? No, it's a sign. Why do we feed the poor? Why, why, why would we feed the poor? Because it's a sign. We're addressing something immediate that speaks to something ultimate. And that's what we're supposed to do. What does it mean to be a prophetic church? It means that our hands get to work on the immediate because we're showing the world something ultimate. This story is incredible because we bang on about like things like the miracles and all that. Yet, the first act of the kingdom 
was something that we overlook because it was what happens between verse 13 and verse 14. Jesus goes over. And unless he went over, you ain't going to see no miracle. Unless we walk over, we aren't going to see no miracles. We won't see any healings. We won't see any deliverance. We won't see redemption. We won't see families made whole. We won't see communities made whole. We won't see schools made whole. Unless we have church eyes.